This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in the latest installment of our Not One Step Back reading series, we look at the introduction to The Golden Age of Soviet Theater by Michael Glenny. So we're talking about uh, this week. We're talking about the finer things. We're talking about the theater. Yeah, the theater. Yeah, that thing you go to once every three years and then promise to go to more but never do. We're talking yeah. about the theater. <laughs> That's right. This is high culture. Um, so basically, what we read was the introduction to uh, the golden age of Soviet theater. Um, that contains three plays, and then this is kind of the introduction. Uh, setting the context for, yeah, like high, kind of high Soviet theater. Um, it's not too long. I guess the broadest stroke you could say about it is, you know, basically theater is pretty cool. I mean, the, Russia had like vibrant theatrical tradition leading up to the revolution. Some cool stuff happened around the revolutionary times as Stalinization set in. Things got less cool. And then they got a little better afterwards. <laughs> right? That's kind of the broad narrative. Yeah. Well, the, the first line makes the pretty bold statement that the first 20 years after the revolution were a golden age of, of Russian theater. Based on what I'm familiar with, I think that's pretty fair to say. Um, but you're, you're right that it, it plays out that this was like this initial burst of social freedom in the revolution that sets off the real avant-garde theater works and just work in the arts in general. Um, But then the bureaucracy kind of solidifies its rule. And, you know, you have these artists kind of carrying on in spite of that as well. And that's why he he really stretches it through the net period and even into Stalin's rule when he's talking about this golden age. Um, But... The bureaucracy uses this so-called association of proletarian writers, R-A-P-P, RAP, is what it's often called. Um, And it's a union, quote-unquote, but it's essentially a creative union of some kind. But it's it's essentially formed as a censorship bureau. Yeah. And it seems like it was kind of composed of, you know, very well-meaning, like, communist activists who wanted to, you know, create, like, a rarefied proletarian culture or whatever and yeah just kind of ended up being used for like you know pretty cynical political ends it sounds like and ended up kind of stultifying a lot of the work by you know every every, basically turning it all into like after school specials for socialism you know (laughs) well and i think that the incredible popularity of mayakovsky speaks to the ironies that arise from that kind of curating that kind of especially state curating of culture or like state influenced uh, because it, rap was so invested in getting the party line, basically, right? 
um, which tends to underestimate the creative interest of the masses. Because Mayakovsky was considered esoteric and unproletarian by his rap colleagues, and he was beloved by the actual proletariat, by the soldiers. <laughs> Um, and so having a, having a mandate on what good proletarian culture is really undermines the ability of the proletariat to work that out themselves. And it's, it's vital that social freedom would be the ultimate backbone of backbone, sorry, of any communist culture. So, uh, just to back up real quick here, do, do any of us know that much about like Soviet theater or does any of us have like a background in a theater in general? I, I know a little bit more about Shostakovich than Mayakovsky. I have just a slight background in early Soviet art. It's cursory. Yeah, I know pretty much dick about it, other than you know being uh, an art fuck in my twenties. Which if you, every advertiser studies Soviet art or whatever, so it's not a big deal. But uh, I thought maybe we could get into a little bit about who this guy is who wrote it. His name is Michael Glenny. Um, he's a Brit- he was a British lecturer in Russian studies and a translator of Russian literature into English. I think he has some essays in some Eisenstein, like, like, like compilations or like Eisenstein's works and that kind of stuff. And yeah, he's, he seems like a pretty interesting person. Um, I might have read some of those, actually, because I've read a few like compendiums of like Eisenstein's like written like film theory or whatever. Uh, it's, been, that's, it's been a minute, though. <laughs> I don't know if I'm reading this right, but it looks like he helped write Yeltsin's autobiography. I, am I wrong? What? Hold on a second. Hold on no a goddamn second. Boo. This guy's canceled. Wait, wait a second. All right. I need to know. I need to know this. Or maybe he maybe he translated it or something or... Yeltsin's autobiography. <laughs> oh, Jesus oh no, he, Christ. he trans he trans he translated it. It's wrong to say he helped him write it. How he many how like... many fucking stained rings were on that manuscript? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, but so okay. So yeah, he translated it. So that's very interesting, actually. Um anyway. Did you actually think it was weird where he kinda ends up defining some theater artists at the time into shills and some into rebels in this kind of really dichotomy at one point like uh, i I thought he kind of the artist i'm more familiar with personally like shostakovich who's kind of more from the end and further on of the period that he's talking about you Mm -hmm. see it kind of mixed going along and rebelling through symbolism because stalinism had so taken hold that obviously you had to do your rebelling and kind of the parameters of it or you die if you were part of cultural production um and so I just thought it was interesting because, you know, he talks about one artist as a failure. He he mentions a play by Afinijimev called Fear, which is kind of about an intellectual coming to terms with Soviet society. And just that, that premise kind of reminded me, you know, how how harsh the Stalin era really was that, you know, if you were a critical thinker and this is before the Stalin era really comes into full swing, but if you were a critical thinker, you had to just innately worry. And if you're a Marxist, you're first to the gulag at that point. Um, and so it just, um, and that that's even without kind of reading the play. Um, I'd, I'd be interested in it for sure, but he kind of condemns it because he's like, Oh, rap kind of stuck a, an ending on it, right? And it's like, mm. okay, yes, rap did stick a 
an ending. He calls it puerile, I think, a puerile ending. But it's certainly, I'm sure it's a thought-provoking play. And, and I think his division of these these guys into like sheep and brave heroes, you know, kind of, he kind of actually makes the brave heroes, the people who decided to um, not address historical themes at all. Uh, and just well, he says that some, sorry, he says that some of those people did, were able to do work in a way that other people weren't like at that, like during that period, because they, they just weren't as concerned with the kind of thing that was going to be subject to censorship. Like at least the stories that they wanted to tell were the kind of, you know, stories that you could tell at any time. And so, I don't know, it sort of makes sense that that's, because you you have to imagine that would get less aesthetic criticism too it just would fly under the radar you're right yeah well like the whole greatness of early soviet theater is it is this like honestly when i was reading about some of these like early performances i got nothing in my mind so much as like i don't know those big north korean like productions like (laughs) which like yeah they're cool it was a weird connection to make, but I have to say, like, if we just, like, overthrew the government and then had, like, a big, you know, dramatic, like, art fuck, like, performance about it, I would be totally into it. And, like, drawing out the the death of the Orthodox Church and how people needed, like, a place for spiritual life and, like, how nurturing this was for creativity and what Grant was saying about the way, like the masses not only were into theater and art, but started to develop like challenging modern tastes. Like there's so much about that. That is so cool that if you kind of see the long arc of actual proletarian culture, you know, what was known as pro cult, like become, well, 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 it became socialist realism and like the actual forming of these like, committees over time was a way of like holding the the identity of the worker over the actual tastes of the worker <laughs> like right. um, i mean actually if you look at these Mayakovsky plays that were super popular they're super high concept and interesting relative to kind of socialist realist cliches um i think bedbug and bathhouse bedbug is 1929 bathhouse 1930 are um and bedbug is the one included in this right i watched the right. beginning of bedbug and it's this like it involves know, time travel right at least one of the two okay. does oh that's cool but it involves some intellectual like talking to a worker and he's like puffing him up about how like communist his wedding is gonna be i haven't gotten that far in it anyway oh no yeah it's so he he's his it's the it's right before his wedding and He's a young man in the age of Nep, and mm-hmm. he gets frozen in a basement. And after 50 years, he's revived in a communist utopia um, with no more poverty and no more booze and smoking and swearing. <laughs> nice. but also, they, they defeat illness and natural disasters, according to sources I'm reading about. Wow. Fuck yeah. <laughs> But uh, he becomes an exhibit at the zoo as an example of the vices of a past age to the citizens <laughs> of the future. So this, it's kind of like Encino Man. <laughs> it's sort of like Encino Man. 
It's the Marxist version. And yeah, then Bathhouse like Bath actually had an interesting plot too. It was um or it was some kind of parody of the bureaucracy. Um but it wasn't as it's really hard to find anything about it. <laughs> There's something with a time machine and a bureaucrat, a, a woman from 2030 um, <clears throat> sent by the Institute of Studying the History of Communism invites <laughs> her to her time. It's, it's, it's interesting. I really want to see somebody in 20, 2030 write like the play about sending that person back in time, <laughs> you know, from our, from our mid 20th century, mid 21st century Star Trek timeline. We should be heading towards nuclear war by that point. Um, yeah. Well, this was with these, these plays, you know, with these high concept things, these were actually well liked by workers, despite the, uh, the criticism from rap and the people actually trying to cultivate a so-called kind of workers culture. I mean, yeah, like, but if that's, you know, yeah, I mean, that makes sense too. I mean, like a lot of people, a lot of workers liked inception and like the matrix and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Like they can handle, they can handle like mind bending shit, you know? Um, Like back, back to the future is one of the most popular movies ever. Apparently like, you know, yeah, people like kind of have a thirst for that, and it's interesting. Capitalism even throws us a little bit of a bone, and I think people really go for it. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. There's opportunities oh, yeah. for so such like crazy you could, art. You can see the difference here, like in in like you know in proper and good values, like like communist Russia. You know, they go back in time for academic reasons. Like whereas <laughs> like in like eighties like late capitalist dystopia, like you go back in time to almost fuck your mom. <laughs> like that, that's, yeah, that's, that, that's fucking that's proletarian degeneration right well there, there. Yeah. there's also that a great is, russian film. I don't know what is. there's a there's a great russian film about going to another planet and they're in it's very historical like stages of production kind of thinking it's like <laughs> they're in feudalism and they're about to have a renaissance but then you know, the, the Soviet government sends some researchers and they're like, should we interrupt the prime directive? Because these, uh, you know, their, their renaissance is about to collapse or something. And then they won't go through the stages of production and get to communism and all of that. Um, it's, it's a all time directive from, it's like the temporal prime directive from enterprise. There's a lot of really interesting Soviet art, actually, um, in terms of film too, and and oh, then, yeah. you know that. Oh no! It, like it's so it's so. Like I I have I don't know I know somebody that is convinced that all good art is like secretly communist or lo- like leaning towards some kind of communist horizon just because of like the way that the modern moment in Russian art like represents the universal like so convincingly you know what i mean because in in a way like obviously we're talking it's it's there's a real time stamp around it you know and like these are a bunch of trends and um like a a bunch of people like to make hay of that but like when you i don't know what what they're what they're doing tends towards the extremes of an aesthetic experience in a way that we would find a kind of recognizable 
in the media that we consume. Like, it, and it almost it's hard to overstate the impact that had on on like modern culture. Well, I mean, yeah, wasn't that modernity like modernity was there was like a utopian kernel to it where it was trending towards something, right? Yeah, and then, like and then and then like post modernity is where whatever that was you know failed basically and what you're just left yeah. with is like the fragments and deatrice of you know the sort of the engine of you know capitalist the deatrice of the capitalist economy you know yeah like that's 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 the difference i think um yeah and that's why like yeah that's why modernity over postmodernity you know like right but, um, but there's a weird, it, there's a weird looking back and longing, like the the postmodern impulse to modernity is to be like, oh man, fucking shapes and shit. That's so thirties. Like not yeah. that, oh, that's so twenties, you know, N- not that it represents the abstract and yeah, that guy in the twenties that he actually like discovered something about the abstract. That's, you know, a real cultural fact or some shit, you know, like it, he really discovered the limits of our experience or something. It's just more like, oh man, that's so twenties. Like, mm, right? Doesn't grapple with actually something that Collingwood sort of was getting at was kind of fun. Um, you know, when people in different fields will run into the same kind of problem, like or strategic bind, and I think this happens in creativity, and that's something that moderns did, like, and sort of talked about as a i don't know as a process to the point where they sometimes larped as scientists and it's funny um but i think they they had something there yeah and it's interesting how kind of like the overall arc and trajectory of soviet theater is kind of parallel to most of the other arts you know in the soviet oh, yeah. at the time cinema all of it um and I think sort of the way he kind of describes how like the ending sort of like it's an there's that one I forget which play it was you were talking about where like the ending is kind of like this like kind of forced optimistic ending like Soviet Union was the only place to do that you know like there were there were plenty of like it's it's this was almost a common thing in that period like there were a lot of works like by Orson Welles that we could take it away from him at the end and then there would be like this weird yeah. forced ending like, well pretty much everything on. was confirming the the state at the time and just kind of going like uh, you know it was it was just as in the mo in america you were just as inclined at the end of your film to kind of tacitly confirm the mode of production right with some kind of cutesy moral oh yeah the Hayes yeah. Code. film had made some amazing exploration of real ambivalence about things like even blade runner you know it makes some amazing ambivalence about justice and kills all the replicants you know it's- yeah well like douglas cirque was like the king of that like he'd make these like movies about kind of like these really kitschy movies about like kind of like alienated american society and at the end like everything was great at the end and it was all fine you know <laughs> like and but it was done it was done to like it was blown up to like such a degree that it was you you could like feel the sarcasm you know yeah that's fun like I don't know how um, fuck. I don't know how familiar you are with the Hayes Code, but it was sort of like what the film industry did after World War II to sort of informally enforce like the ideological, moral, social code. Like right. it's it's one of those instances where you really see ideology in action. Like the film industry is like, look, we need to like help bolster 
this new like post-war society and clean up our act like in in the ways like it's 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 the it's the invention of like the american culture that we know because Mm -hmm. if if you watch like i don't know like films before like american films before um the haze code you get some real grit you get like there's some there's some really raw shit that you just don't expect in american culture and cinema i find it totally unrecognizable like well yeah so the haze code was adopted in 1930 um so it was actually pre-war excuse Um, me pre-war not after the war before the war yeah a lot more contemporaneous with this yeah so excuse me it's it's not an it's not like a distant analogy it's a contemporaneous historical analogy yeah it seems like a lot of it because i'm yeah that because a lot of it was also um kind of just like tied to sort of just good old-fashioned american like moral puritanism um Mm -hmm. in people's like the whole thing about like decadent hollywood and stuff like that um and so it was a way to like basically please all the different you know religious groups and whatnot that's Um, interesting yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's a pretty great scene. I don't know if you've seen like that Coen Brothers movie, uh, Hail Caesar, came out a few years ago. It had Marcuse in it. Oh shit! Um, they're making like this. It's it's a fascinating movie because like it's about the making of this biblical epic, and then like the the main character is like this Roman sent soldier who you know meets Jesus and sees the way or whatever you know, and the, it's played by George Clooney, and so the actor gets abducted by this group of of like Marxists led by <laughs> Herbert Marcuse and, <laughs> and eventually like he's a, he's a, he's a fucking moron, but eventually they explain like what they're all about. And he's like, yeah, you know, like he starts like kind of like slowly adopting like Marxist ideas. <laughs> like, wow. and so like, like it's interesting how like this, it's this, you know, like the movie almost seems to like tie together, like, like early Christianity and like Marxist, anyway um sounds very interesting yeah but there's a, there's a scene where like because he's making this biblical epic he like the producer brings in all of like the different major denominations like there's a rabbi there's a, a priest there's a you know pastor there's the i think one other one is trying to be like okay you watch them no you you watch you watch you watch the movie like what do you, is there anything you find objectionable you know like is this is this all good with everybody you know <laughs> Are, are so, we are we PC here? Yeah. No. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, Old school PC, like yeah. right wing political correctness. Gentlemen, thank you all for coming. I know you have parishes, flocks, and temples making enormous demands on your time, but I'm sure you appreciate also the great masses of humanity look to pictures for information and uplift and yes, entertainment. Now here at Capitol Pictures, as you know. An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen story of the Christ. It's a swell story. A story told before, yes. But we'd like to flatter ourselves that it's never been told with this kind of distinction and panache. Perhaps, sir, you forget it's telling in the Holy Bible. Quite right, Patriarch. The Bible, of course, is terrific. But for millions of people, pictures will be their reference point for the story. The story's embodiment. The story's, uh... Realization. Realization. You realize, of course, that for we Jews, any visual depiction of the Godhead is most strictly prohibited. Oh. But of course, for us, the man Jesus Nazarene is not God. Aha. Now, Hail Caesar is a prestige picture, our biggest release of the year, and we're devoting huge resources to its production in order to make it first class in every respect. Gentlemen, given its enormous expense, 
We don't want to send it to market except in the certainty that it will not offend any reasonable American regardless of faith or creed. Now that's where you come in. You've read the script. I want to know if the theological elements of the story are up to snuff. I thought the chariot scene was fakey. How is he going to jump from one chariot to the other going full speed? Uh-huh. Well, we can look at that. But as for the religious aspect, does the depiction of Christ Jesus cut the mustard? Well, the nature of Christ is not quite as simple as your photoplay would have it. How so, Father? It's not the case simply that Christ is God or God Christ. You could say that again. The Nazarene was not God. He was not not God. He was a man. Part God. No, sir. Rabbi, all of us have a little bit of God in us, don't we? Well, it's the foundation of our belief that Christ is most properly referred to as the Son of God. It's the Son of God who takes the sins of the world upon himself so that the rest of God's children, we imperfect beings, through faith, may enter the kingdom of heaven. So God is split? Yes. And no. There is unity in division. And division in unity. I'm not sure I follow, Padre. Young man, you don't follow for a very simple reason. These men are screwballs. God has children. What, and a dog? A collie, maybe? God doesn't have children. He's a bachelor and very angry. No, no, he used to be angry. What, he got over it? You worship the God of another age. Who has no love. Not true. He likes Jews. God loves everyone. God is love. God is who is. This is special. Who isn't who is? But how should God be rendered in a motion picture? God isn't in the motion picture. Then who is Todd Hawkeye? Gentlemen, maybe we're biting off more than we can chew. We don't need to agree on the nature of the deity here. If we could focus on the Christ, whatever his parentage. My question is, is our depiction fair? I have seen worse. Reverend? There's nothing to offend a reasonable man. Father? Well, the motion picture teleplay was uh, respectful and exhibited tastefulness in class. Who made you an expert all of a sudden? And what do you think, Rabbi? Yeah. I have an opinion. How'd we do? I don't think. Fine. What's up? Nationalism yeah. and family and religion. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, it's, you know, people like make fun of the fact that, like, Reverend, like, Al Sharpton can do, like, shakedowns of, like, Hollywood, Hollywood producers for not representing things accurately or whatever, you know. But, like, that's, I feel like it probably goes back to that, honestly, is where all that, all of that started. And it just kind of became normalized practice in Hollywood. Anyway. Um, no, no, that's interesting because to, to what degree is the process that's going on in the Soviet Union a broader process of modernity that you see throughout fascist capitalism and liberal capitalism? Well, I mean, I think you got to again, you got to pull the the board's concept of um, diffuse and concentrated spectacle, right? Yeah, um, that's it's 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 two different like modes of like managing ideology yeah. that are re reflective of two different. I basically, I don't know, modes of production is the right word, but two different social systems, right? Two different systems for managing two. society. Um, yeah. Yeah, different, par like, parallel, I would say modes of production. Yeah, like, forms of, mid forms of, um, yeah. Yeah, they're different, like, different kinds of state. Like Because we're really the, talking the about state, how, about state policy and state intervention in culture. This is true. But well, it's, except, it's more except it's more that the Hayes Code. 
yeah, it's more diffuse in the United States because you have these like private firms kind of trying to. I guess yeah, that themselves. that diffusion is kind of how they do it, and but I guess that is that does raise the question of you know it's kind of organicness. Okay, I see your point. Yeah, bourgeois civil society imposed like I, I'm sorry, um, like in order to please bourgeois civil society, you know the major film cartel, like like car, the, the the film industry cartelizes to do this, like. Right. Or, or takes advantage of the cartel that's already there <laughs> mm -hmm. to to implement this. Whereas, yeah, I don't know. I think, yeah, this is again where it's like purely a self-inflicted own, though. What do you mean? To my to my understanding. Could you? But then again, you, I thought it was after the war. Could you? Could you elaborate on that? What do you mean? Like um, I don't know much about the history of the Hayes Code. Was it really just adopt? Like, was it adopted with kind of no government encouragement or? Uh, I could pull up the Wikipedia and see. I mean, honestly, like for instance, I don't know if you know what the Comics Code Authority is, um, but that was the thing that basically got rid of all the most like interesting comics in the middle of the twentieth century, um, and that was pretty much like there were some basically like government hearings to investigate the relationship between juvenile delinquency and comic books but the industry basically like 100 percent bent over and decided to basically like self-regulate rather than have to like uh, deal with like congress doing something so yeah maybe maybe it was like that and like the state like th kind of threatened and they just decided to kind of like self-censor um, no you're right grant no that's exactly what happened yeah they they, they um were putting out salacious material and then uh, republicans got on their ass and um they decided to self-regulate. Yeah. So exactly. yeah. So I it is you know parallel, <laughs> uh, but it's amazing how how Americans you know capitalist society is able to to marshal its people like that. Yeah, it was officially called the Motion Picture Production Code, ad adopted um, by what was called at the time the MPPDA which became the modern um, Motion Picture Association of America. And yeah, this is the origins of the rating system that we have in the United States. All right, so uh, it's a bit of a detour. Yeah, but I mean, no, I, I, think, I think it's fair, though, because like, yeah, this, it's a shitty story to see proletarian culture turn into boy meets tractor, like... But um, this wasn't exclusive to Stalinism. This what, and it wasn't exclusive in a way to totalitarianism. Like this happened in liberal society too. Well, yeah, and I also did like I was kind of thinking about the board too when he talked about how like theater kind of like socially replaced church a little bit and what kind of like the implications yeah. of that are. You know. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. We're bas basically this kind of like mediated like religious experiences like shift into like this kind of secular like spectacle yeah. that you know like the religious thing you're supposed to have like some kind of relationship to it you know this, like, right. this kind of like abstract entity whereas like it, the spectacle you're basically it's voyeuristic and you're just kind of like watching yeah. watching this thing that's happening you know yeah and like the art fuck atures that this kind of enables i got serious debord feels reading even the cool early like North Korean spectacle parts of <laughs> parts of, of like 
Bolshevik art, like, even though those sounded cool, like when they described how they put a, it sounded like a sort of like aristocratic or sort of like high society type in charge of one of the, one of the uh, production companies. And it was like a beloved choice and it, it was thought of as a good idea, but this guy wasn't like in the party or anything. You know what I mean? Like he seemed detached and like it's, they talked about his like perfectionist studio. And it just made me think of those like r- sadistic Russian, like ballet instructors or something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Oh, like, so you, I think it was the, the guy who like trained under Stanislavski. Um, yeah, let's let's revisit the article. So we can, this is a not one step back request. So we got to give our man our money's worth here. On St- Stanislavski, I think you're right that it's Stanislavski. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I also stumbled upon a phrase like I can't really find it, but just um I don't know. It's kind of a left field, but like it's kind of a left turn, but just like. No matter the heights of a, of a totalitarianism, you know that like it, it, there might have been some kind of weird collision between like the big personalities of high art and like state power. Like there's definitely like a very worrying nexus there. That if you're a Marxist, especially like if you're like the debord type that fucking hates how art emboldens people, like the the way art, art emboldens certain people in a market. And the kind of sociopath it breeds, like, <laughs> um, it, like you, you still can't help but feel like there's something about the spiritual NEP that uh, that's that's what the like Stalinist bureaucracy called what they wanted to crush when they were like cracking down on the theater, like the the idea that the NEP was some kind of great creative time of liberal freedom is so terribly ironic considering we just read Victor Serge say it was the birth of totalitarianism because it was markets without like freedom basically or it was like some kind of mediated market without like bourgeois liberty but for but for the Stalinist bureaucracy it was the, the sort of spirit that they wanted to crack down on like I just thought that was super interesting because there is a there is a sort of freedom in the arts that lasted longer than it did in greater society. Like there was, it was hard to crush the Russian creative spirit. They did it, but like it was hard. It was harder than it was to you know actually crush the working class. It took longer. Like, well, actually, I think that. Um the vitality of some of the great Russian artists reflects the endurance of the, of the working class through the horrors of Soviet terror, because, you know, at, at, at a certain point, they're just subjects to a totalitarian state and um, not to use the T word. I, I understand it's flawed, but um, please don't use the T word on my timeline. But, you know, I think Shostakovich relates to this, to these things being parallel with religion, too, in the way of these things being the heart of a heartless world. You know, you had these very, in his um, symphonies, you know, you had these very emotive subtexts that could very easily be read in as like loss 
and sorrow during the purges. And, you know, he would put in these, these ironic kind of commentaries into the music, or at least that's what we've read back into him. So he's created a rich enough body of work for us to be able to do that at least. And, you know, he, I, I think that people reacted to Shostakovich even once he was kind of constrained to socialist realism and not just this composer, but several of the composers. And again, this is why I think that that like hacks versus rebels thing that the author does with Soviet theater in the first 20 years ignores the achievements under Stalinism. Um, mm. You know, I, I, I think that Shostakovich shows that the working class too, you know, there was responsiveness to the the subtle commentary on the bureaucracy. You know, the fact that this guy had to be suppressed in the first place when yeah. he looked at I'm, his career. I'm going to go ahead and defend his, his split between the, the intelligentsia and the engineers. And the reason I say that is like, how do you think history will remember Michael Bay? Will history remember Michael Bay as a great pop artist or as like a machine artist? Like just sort of like someone that was following the rules. Like I'm in camp following the rules. Like there are some great pop artists that do like really absurd shit for their time. That seems cheap, but it's like really stand out. I don't know if Michael Bay is going to do that. I yeah, don't I mean, know if that's the best example, but I see what you're saying. Well, why? Because, like, I think Michael Bay genuinely believes everything in everything he does. You know what I mean? Like, I think Mike. I think if if you put Michael Bay in like a vacuum and let's say you could do whatever you want, no restrictions, like you would probably get like Transformers eight. Like he would just that's what he would come up with organically. I mean, you're probably right, but that just means that you know Capital wrote his personality. Like you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that the dicta the dictats of the market like are him. He has become this the rule set. Like I don't you know. I don't think, I think that there are other really people. I think there are other people who are like hacks who, you know, like look at like uh, I don't know, like Lars von Trier, right? Oof! Like oof! Now that just, is that, that's a quality European hack. It's an import. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like I mean, I don't know, or even honestly, like uh, Michael Haneke. Like I think there's plenty of there are other forms of like hacks that like I don't know are get branded as rebels. You know, Darren Aronofsky. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, honestly, I wouldn't say it about Darren Aronofsky, but we may just be getting into quibbling here over who's <laughs> what. It, I, either way, this isn't the most. Uh, this is. I agree that this isn't the most like useful, useful metric to. I mean, I get what they're saying, though. You know, no, like, it's yeah, just like if you have to get rap stuff stuck on the end of your play to publish any cultural work in Russian theater at the time, you know, well, that doesn't make you an engineer though like the, okay, en you know the engineers don't need this? to be censored the pat engineers boone. don't need to be censored because they do it to themselves pat boone would be a, like a better example of like a fucking yeah all right yeah that I, I can totally agree with pat boone he's an engineer he's an engineer working in market conditions like that like those people exist and when you get into the way that art replaces religion you think about the end of the avant-garde and the kind of foreclosure of the transcendent power of art <clears throat> that really the russian the the russian like 
modernist period represents. It represents the transformative potential, or at least the representation of transformative potential in something like a universal language. Like it represents this, it holds these hopes over your head. And then, then you have this, this, yeah, yeah. And then, and then it holds the very concept of, of freedom, like, and uses it as a kind of like market, you know, accumulation dynamic that you see in every scene or something like, I'm, that's not what's happening, I guess, in the Soviet Union, but like that's, you know, deboard more generally on the diffuse spectacle. And then on the concentrated spectacle, instead of the market, it's delivering, you know, the state morality. It's, you know, the reanimated corpse of Ferdinand LaSalle, like stomping on your desires. Like. <laughs> All right, we did it. We got fucking 38 minutes. Boom. I no, I mean, this is this is actually pretty interesting. Like this was a study in ideology, and this was and th there's there's a big undercurrent here of talking about the difference between art produced in a historical period and pieces of ideology. Th there's an undercurrent here that I think is acceptable, like is 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 real, and and obviously like the like the play that was given a, a kitsch ending, you know, something that could have easily happened in a capitalist studio. But like, yeah, like, like fear, like, um, you know, just because, just because the government cracks down on your shit doesn't make you an engineer. In fact, that's, yeah, as, as I said before, that's why they crack down because you, you didn't ideologize. Like, yeah, I mean, you'd, you would have to write off like most of like the products of golden age Hollywood, um, as hack work like if you applied that metric you know mm -hmm. i mean the only the, the thing is like the only difference is like hollywood didn't have like this crazy i mean there, there was the pre-code stuff but even then it was mostly like they was mostly trash like there was more good stuff after the code than before honestly i mean if you don't count the silent era um, <laughs> well that's the thing i mean i don't know like i some people excel in in boundaries and i think i think like I think this metric is, you know, I don't think he's yeah, too ma Maximum social freedom is going to be, because that is what really spawned the beginning of the Russian Revolution's art being so amazing and all of that abstract work. Like, yeah. We get Malevich in painting out of the turmoil from the working class um, in the early yeah. 20th century. You yeah, know, and that painting of shapes to de to describe the Civil War, right? And like like the constructivists too, yeah. Um, Elizabeth, that's just beautiful kind of thing, and that that is beautiful stuff, and it resonates today for some of those universal themes you were talking about. But I, I think it comes out of the fact that they were making inroads on the mode of production, and realizing new forms of social freedom, and and that does ossify and go away and then that that human spirit does have to be expressed in these kind of disguised forms from that point on you know and so i i as much as the boundaries like i think even in american society if the censorship could somehow be kept from being brought in i think you know the, the market forces would produce that kind of trash but at the same time you know producing a good film today who who was who is making good film today is a, is a tough question to crack and asks a lot of questions about what your kind of criteria is even. But 
it's in a in a market ruled society there just seem to be these inherent yeah. yeah like today we're dealing with a pretty different situation with censorship like in one of Darren Aronofsky's latest movies he like sets a baby on fire like mm-hmm. it, c- censorship now is is like a different thing like they're like self-censorship or like the, the role civil of social extremity norm is so yeah. regulated to like you know just right. like that you would you would never show, transgression you know you don't you don't show a a full frontal penis or vagina in a movie but you can you can murder 50 people you know you can uh, rape a baby in a movie like not like it like it, they had there's a whole horror movie about that like well, but you're talking film. about fringe cinema I, i'm thinking about like, mainstream stuff well hold on we're talking but, about but, stuff. but that stuff that stuff like played in american culture that that came out like they, they had like that that was a big it was a big deal. Okay, but yeah, wait, wait, you film. have to name the film you're talking. What are you? Uh, it's a Serbian film. Okay, I know about a Serbian that film. Shit, that but... shit came out. Uh, okay, no, all right. Lexi's, but... Lexi's, Lexi's just doing a metaphor for what the Phantom Menace did to my childhood. That's what oh, I'm talking about. Yeah. That's right, a no, really no, 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 you know what? Example of, no, you, you know, you know what? Actually, and... that didn't come out in uh, that didn't come out in the U.S. So just cut no, all that. No, it didn't. All right, thank you. I was gonna say that too, but I didn't. I thought you were probably right if you were saying it, but no, no, no. no. Well, it was. Uh, it, it got critical attention. It got critical attention and was yeah. Like, so snuff movies like, got made in Europe or whatever. Right, That's right, good. all right. No, no, no. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. I thought a Serbian film was a bigger deal. Like I'll say, I'll say this. Like now is the time where if, if you're if you ever watched like grew up watching uh, watching Disney cartoons and thought. Maybe if I could turn, maybe if I, could, I just got a new graphics card. Maybe if I'd max out the settings on this, this will look a lot better. This is never a better time for you at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go, go watch Solaris, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Not the George Clooney one either. Oh, fuck like that. It. I didn't even remember <laughs> that existed. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. This, this, this is why they don't pay me for cultural commentary. You just cut everything I said, whoever's editing this. Like I don't know. Yeah, we can just we can just go out to uh, "Babies on Fire" by uh, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Babies on fire. Better throw her in the water. Look at her laughing like a heifer to the slaughter. Babies on. And that's it for this week. A little bit shorter than usual. We didn't have a lot to say about this one. All that we read was really a short intro to a 
collection of plays. We should have read one of the plays, but we didn't have a copy handy to be able to do that, and we didn't really budget our time effectively to actually watch one on YouTube or something. We could have maybe done some rounding up of the news, which I haven't really done in a while, but I think the main reason for that is just that the news is just kind of depressing lately, honestly. Like, it's not... It's not really funny anymore. I mean, it wasn't funny before. A lot of it was fucking awful, but... I don't know, I think maybe this whole... All those sort of grim reports on the climate and all that shit just puts... Puts an extra damper on things where... It's like, we can't be... We can't be fucking around anymore, you know? Like, it's... Look at the freedom gas thing, right? Now, what, 15, 20 years ago, it was freedom fries. They changed something in the commissary in the Congress building or whatever. Now, that's stupid and laughable, but it's kind of benign. But freedom gas... That's just a whole other level of evil and stupid combined. Like we're we're calling freedom gas stuff that we export because it's too fucking dirty to burn even here. That's freedom. I don't know. Yeah, there's like an extra layer of grim on top of just the absurdity that we're inundated with in the news from every day. And still, liberals somehow, in the face of this ongoing catastrophe, somehow manage to find the most narrow and uninteresting things to be upset about. It's maddening. But yeah, I've been kind of rushing through these closings. I haven't checked in on you in a while. How, uh, how are you doing? Hmm? Things looking up for you? Otherwise? Besides, you know, everything else? Looks like Gravel's not going to make the debates. Gravel, or however you, however you pronounce it. But... That was funny while it lasted. Yang may or may not make it in at this point. It's really going to suck, honestly, if Bernie is, like, the only, like, weirdo candidate in the mix there. You know, that's going to spoil it for me. I was really hoping we'd have a nice... I mean, you know, they call it a clown car or whatever, but it's just, like, a bunch of, like, boring Democrats for the most part. You know, let's, let's mix it up a little bit. Let's give this thing some juice. Nobody wants to watch. I don't know whoever they have, the Pete guy or whoever. No, that's not that's not good TV. So we made an official announcement on the Facebook page a while back, but 
it looks like Donald's not coming back to the show. It sucks. Um, he kind of just left of his own accord and then didn't come back. Um, kind of tried to broker. Yeah, basically had a personal falling out with Lexi. And, you know, tried to see if there's a way that the beef could be squashed or things could be arranged so that there could be some kind of functional working relationship, but that doesn't look like that's going to happen. Sorry I didn't say anything sooner, but like I said, I was kind of waiting. I was thinking maybe the whole thing would kind of, I don't know, sort itself out or something. But never really did. Um, but he's working on a cosmonaut, the blog over there. They might get something going. Maybe either a podcast or maybe something for YouTube or whatever. I'd be down to stop by on that from time to time. Yeah, that could be fun. But, uh, yeah. Sucks. I'm gonna miss having him on the show. I already do miss having him on the show, to be honest. Um, like, having... His, having, putting his sensibility on Mike was, like, a big motivation for me to do this from the beginning, or to start this project. So, yeah, I'm gonna miss having his voice on there, but, I don't know, sometimes shit just doesn't work out. Alright, if you want to send us money, you know what to do. Email is at uh, swampsidechats at gmail. If you need to get a hold of us. You can find us anywhere else. You know, just, just Google us. You'll, you'll figure it out. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>